Hey folks, John here from A's for Alcoholic again. Today's conversation is with Karen L. And the thing that struck me so is that she is a woman from Ghana living in the UK. And how similar, strikingly similar, our stories were and are. And it just goes to show you that we all come at this thing from a very similar place. We talked a lot about the program. We talked about the activism work that she does. We talked about getting sober, trying moderation, and getting past the roadblocks that so many of us have when finding a program that works for us. So without further ado, here is my wonderful conversation with Karen L. Karen, thank you so much. I appreciate you doing this. Um, I appreciate your time and your willingness and all of those good things that we come to find in this particular program that we share. Um, and so the first question I like to ask people is, what is your first memory of alcohol? When do you first remember encountering it? Maybe not as your first drunk, but even as something that you were around as a child. Yeah, first of all, thank you so much, John, mm. for asking me to be of service. Um, they always say service keeps you sober. So I always try to leap at an opportunity to to share my experience, strength and hope. So yeah, in answer to your question, um, alcohol has always been around me in, in my entire life. Um, my parents are from Ghana in West Africa. And um, yeah, there was always alcohol in the house. There was always some um, like really, really strong beers and lagers in the house. Uh, I remember, um, well, I don't remember, but one of the um, running jokes in my family is that I used to call my dad's beer daddy's medicine so I would say in tree my first language is tree which is spoken in Ghana I would call it daddy draw and daddy draw means daddy's medicine so I would always call um, my my dad's lager his medicine mm. <laughs> and I don't I don't know where that came from maybe I may, I think maybe um, I was asking my mum where that came from once and she said something like, you know, that's that's just, you know, I would ask what it was that my dad was drinking and that's what he would say, it's his medicine. And so that's something that I've, I've um, been around, it's just something I've been around from a very young age. And yeah, my mum used to drink um, quite strong lagers as well. And, you know, there was, there was always... There was always like a my 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 fa my my family used to buy my parents used to buy these big um, crates of I think like packs of 24, um, 24 500 milliliter cans of of lager really strong lager. Um, I also grew up um, in I grew up in a in a Jehovah's Witness community. And we weren't really, we, we weren't allowed to celebrate birthdays or Christmases or anything like that. Nothing, uh, no, or Easter, no holidays or anything like that. So the only time um, my parents would meet their um, non-Jehovah's Witness Ghanaian friends was at, um, was at weddings or um, like community parties or at funerals. And um, funerals are very big business in Ghana. And really? that, that culture came, uh, they brought that culture here to the UK as well. So, you know, someone, someone would hire a big massive community hall and there'll be lots of food and lots of alcohol, of course. And um, that would be the time when my parents would really let their hair down and, and you know, spend time with their friends and yeah there'll be lots and lots of lager there and so um yeah beer lager has always been um a big part of my childhood and I don't really remember the first time I tasted it I, but I remember when I was younger tasting it like this is disgusting I, I will never ever drink this um mm. but I'm sure we'll find out later that um <clears throat> that that didn't that reaction didn't follow me through follow mm. me throughout my life so yeah that was how alcohol first came into contact with me in, in early life I think um the idea of daddy's medicine is a 
very universal uh, thing in at least in the United States. We would always joke about it being, and even even well into my drinking career, it was always a joke of like, it's grandpa's cough syrup, right? It's the whiskey. And so, or, you know, things like, um, I'll crack open a bottle of cheap whiskey or cheap gin and be like, oh, it, uh, it smells like grandma's kisses. And so there was always this sort of like, we would make these little jokes yeah. about our parents or our grandparents drinking and that it was this, it was, well, it was far more socially acceptable. Mm. I mean, it still is to its detriment or not very yeah. socially acceptable, but it's certainly these little sort of um, euphemisms that get used to make it cute and funny and, you know, sort of sweep under the rug, all the other things that came with, you know, for me and my father, all of the abuse and neglect and rage and all the stuff that happened. And so it was like a way to kind of make light of something that was really a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that. So you, you had your first drink. I don't know what, what age do you remember? Like when you were like, that's nasty. Yeah. Sometimes I don't think I'm a real alcoholic because a lot of people say, you know, you're an alcoholic when you remember your first drink. And I don't remember mine. <laughs> so I do sometimes that worm does get into my head. Like maybe I'm mm -hmm. not a real alcoholic if I don't remember my first drink. Um, but I do, I do remember tasting like, sneaking into the fridge because sometimes my dad would um leave a half opened like a half drunk can of beer in the fridge mm -hmm. um and he would yeah he would just leave it there and sometimes I would go in the fridge and sneak in to to have a sip um <clears throat> I don't remember what age I was at and it was always really disgusting <laughs> right um do you when did um when did alcohol, what was the epiphany moment? What was the, was there one where you were like, oh my God, this is it. I found the answer to all of life's problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That happened when I was 18. I had um, finished a, a, my first ever job. I was a waitress um, at a local exhibition center and on the last day of our of our job we were um we we our, my boss took us to the pub and I haven't that's the first time I'd been to a pub because um even though pub culture is a really big part of English culture my parents are not English so mm -hmm. so it wasn't a big part of mine but I'd grown up watching like soap operas and uh, tv programs like Coronation Street and EastEnders and Emmerdale and it was always the, it was always centered around the pub so um that's all that's also something I aspire to like I aspire to I, I aspire to having that kind of community so when I um went to the pub for the first time and um my boss was buying me um white wine spritzers which is a drink I used to see people drinking on um Coronation Street or EastEnders <laughs> And um, so the, uh, the way the way I had it for the first time was in a wine glass with um, white wine and then it was topped up with lemonade. Mm -hmm. And oh, my gosh, I fell in love with that drink straight away. <laughs> <clears throat> I fell in love with it. And that's when and at, at that time I was dealing with um, a really deep depression and feeling like life wasn't going my way. I had applied to go to a really prestigious university and I was rejected. And um, it was the first time in my life, um, when I was 18, it was the first time in my life where I started to um, realize that um, hard work doesn't equal success. <laughs> and so it was, I was starting to get disillusioned. So when I discovered alcohol at that time, I was just like, wow, this is amazing. Um, I don't have any sense of fear or um, any sense of distress or any sense of um, regret or anything like that anymore. It's just this, me and this drink and um, it was amazing. So yeah, that's-, that's White wine time. spritzers. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> which, which, you know, in retrospect, maybe seems, 
I don't know, trite or silly. Like, you know, we, like we laugh about it, right? Because a yeah. white wine spritzer is very low alcohol. Um, but in those moments, in the beginning, yeah. when you find that magical thing, like it's the most, it really is this, this super special thing, Yeah, you know? And um, it, it, it's, I'm thinking there's, a, there's an episode of the Simpsons where Ned Flanders, who does not drink, gets really loaded on white wine spritzers, 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 <laughs> and he goes crazy and has this whole thing in Vegas. And, you know, I don't, but it's, it's, um, that's, that's the joke, but it, it doesn't really matter mm. what it is. It doesn't have to be a bottle of whiskey or anything like that. It, it's, it's one of those things that we later come to find out it's really insidious <laughs> that yeah. something as light as a white wine spritzer could be the thing that led you on a completely different path. Mm, um, yeah. And so everything's, everything's great now, right? You don't have to worry about it. You, you're not concerned about the rejection from the university and life is good. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. White- I mean, yeah, I mean, life was like, it was just good at that particular moment. <laughs> so, and that, right. that's the thing about alcohol is that it, the effect doesn't last very long. So, um, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, and that's an interesting point. And I, this is something I've thought yeah. about a lot is this seeking behavior mm-hmm. and that we as alcoholics are always looking for the next high, the next drunk, the next feel good moment. And I know too, that for me, that seeking behavior has drifted into my sobriety and manifested itself in eating, uh, shopping Mm -hmm. in all kinds of other ways too. And so, um, that's an interesting point that you bring up that it was like in that moment. Yeah, Uh exactly. In that moment, it was, everything was fine. Um, Mm -hmm. but afterwards it was not. Yeah. Right. And how long did this go on for? Was there like, where did you, did you find that there were repercussions other than not feeling the good feeling? Like, did you come into contact with legal issues or social issues? Yeah, well, um, my consequences um, were not very extreme at first and they did become quite extreme. So like I, I started drinking at 18, which is the legal drinking age here in the UK. So I always thought, you know, I was very, I was very straight and on the straight and narrow. My parents were in, I was a, you know, from a respectable family. Um, I was going to go into a respectable career. And um, actually for, for a very long time, I didn't actually know that alcohol was my problem. Obviously there were problems, there were consequences like, you know, I, I vomited. I vomited on a friend's duvet um, when I went to visit her in Norwich, and because I got really drunk, and um, I, I know, you know, I didn't know, remember what happened, and it was so it was embarrassing. But at the same time, I didn't remember it. So you know that there was a vomiting, and um, it was more like embarrassing things like that, um, and. Um, yeah so just the usual things like that and it it made me um it all it did was make me think oh I just need to learn how to manage my drinking better and also I felt like it was part and parcel of growing up because that's I I grew up in a very sheltered environment but that's what I saw in the media um that you know people get drunk and then they vomit and so it's kind of you know it's kind of part of growing up and a rite of um, passage yeah it's yeah. a rite of passage it's part of um yeah part of university life and things like that um but then yeah I started I started working I'm really not I'm not really good with time because I've discovered in sobriety that I have ADHD so in terms of like how long things t- took on what when things happen I'm not really good at that but in February 20. 20- 2008 I started working in a bar and it was just like access to alcohol all the time and um it was so much so that I um I I you know I'd left I had left home by then and um my 
I was estranged from my family because um, of our differences in terms of religion and things like that. I had left the religion. So I was on my own for the first time and just like feeling free and going wild. And it felt like a sense of liberation to me. But, you know, I would end up um, having, I would end up, you know, waking up in, in, in people's beds and going home with guys and not knowing how I, that I had ended up there and um, experiencing what I now see as sexual assault. Um, but for me at that time, it was just like, haha, like this thing happened. And, you know, I had sex with that guy and this guy did that to me. And that group of guys had turns, took turns. And, you know, it just felt like it was, you know, I would go back to, to work and tell my friends at, at the bar about what would happen. And we'd all be laughing about it. Um, and it was so I didn't see those as con things as consequences. It was just me, you know, sowing my wild oats, <laughs> as it were. Right. Um, yeah. Right. So it was it, it's very scary when you think about it now. But those, those are the kind of consequences. And and also just I was at university at that time and I just wouldn't be able to turn up to class and do my essays and mm -hmm. um, but I, I always blamed that on my depression and anxiety and later on on trauma from the sexual violence and from leaving a high control religion I didn't relate that to alcohol at all <laughs> that's how that's how the not how how much in denial I was um, and yeah because I'm because I was a goody two-shoes I wasn't really um I didn't really get in trouble with the law um, mm. or do anything illegal. It was just like really pers things that were happening to me that that in terms of consequences that I, I would say. Yeah, and the the sexual assault in active alcoholism, like I there there are several. There are plenty mm -hmm. of moments I remember with people that you know, everybody was drunk and I don't, you know, and I have vague recollections of times I had with women and I have, you know, like I can't account for all of that time. And I also have no idea, regardless of how my intention might've been or seemed or felt to me, mm. how it, how it happened for them, you know? Yeah. And it's also, there, there are people that are now nameless and, you know, faceless to me because I was in a blackout or mm whatever the case may be, I have absolutely no way of finding, making amends, doing any of these, any of that kind of work. And so I think that that's something, and I think about that stuff. Um, and I think it's something that we, I think it's important to, to admit that those yeah. moments happen, even if there's, there's really nothing that I can do that they that they happened that they existed and I have no idea and I would like to we all like to think that we're we're better than that but yeah anybody who's an alcoholic knows that that stuff that idea of being better than that mm. gets overridden very quickly yeah so it's just another um good reminder for me that there's other people on the side of our actions when we drink. Yeah. It's not just us. Yeah. Um, definitely. So, um, yeah. And I, so you are in university, you're not making it to class. You're, um, participating in risky behavior mm -hmm. that, um, you, we just laugh off. We yeah. just laugh off. And, it's not drinking. It's the depression. It's the, mm. this, it's the, that there's never like, and I don't know if you, you, you talk about this and it reminds me of like, I would have this blind spot. Like I can remember all the horrible things, horrible hangovers, horrible nights, horrible fights with people and friends. And never once did I think maybe I should stop drinking. Like it just mm -hmm. didn't occur as it yeah. being the problem. And that was, you know, that's today that's mind blowing. <laughs> it really, it really is. Sometimes I look back on it and I'm just like, wow, how did you not know? But yeah, it's just, it is mind blowing because, you know, I, I always had other things to blame it on. And it was, you know, you know that um, the passage in the big book from Acceptance is the Answer where he says, if, if you had my life, you'd drink too. 
you know, I thought alcohol was my medicine, you know, mm-hmm. because my antidepressants weren't working. And <laughs> no, I know now my antidepressants <laughs> weren't working because I was drinking. Mm-hmm. But um, even before I started drinking really heavily, my antidepressants weren't working. And um, I wasn't getting therapy because um, I was told that, you know, my I, even though I had told the therapist the trauma that I was had been going through um they basically said you know you're not really mentally ill you're just having problems adjusting to uni so I think on a subconscious level I took that as a person as a challenge you know it felt like they were throwing down the gauntlet uh, the gauntlet and say saying to me prove how fucked up you really are and how much you really need us um it took me even though I live in the UK and we have a nationalized health service it took me five years to get therapy on on the NHS Mm. and um because I wasn't getting the help that I needed alcohol felt like the only the only way I could stay alive and to be very honest with you I'm so glad that that's the choice I made even despite all of the horrific consequences um I'm so glad that that's the choice I would have I made because I I wouldn't have been able to survive if it hadn't been for alcohol shutting down all of my emotions as a result of all the trauma that I had been through um but yeah it definitely wasn't something that I, I identified as a problem yeah and it's and so in that too alcohol works until it doesn't and so yeah. i think that's that's the thing to remember not that i would be saying it's a good idea to drink to cover up your emotions but if you're not capable available or ready to cope with them right that's that's why we seek this thing out and then you go oh okay i can manage this oftentimes not very well, but I can manage it and use it to not feel the things that I can't deal with. Um, But so you, this goes on for the entire time you're, you're in university. Um, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) When, when does it start to, when do you start thinking about looking for sobriety as a solution? Um, so it's, I started thinking about it in 2010. So this was like, um, I, I start, I date my really heavy drinking from 2008. Cause that's when I started bartending. And so by t- 2010, I was about to lose my job um, mm. because I was turning up to, I, well, I wasn't turning up to work drunk, but I was drinking on, I was drinking at work and just get, just getting really hammered while I was on shifts and uh, customers were complaining about me to my manager and I was on you know verbal warning written warning final warning and um, it was really bad so but this bar that I was working at was my was my friendship group it was my community and I knew that if I got fired I wouldn't be able to come back and have discounted drinks (laughs) So, so I was like I need to protect this source of alcohol so i'm gonna i'm gonna resign instead (laughs) that is true form alcoholic thinking i was a bartender for 12 years i understand completely um yes yes you know i had i had it down to a science it was one Mm. shot about every 45 minutes that's what i could manage Mm. and have fun and not black out although ultimately i'm on the phone with the owner because i'm blacked out drunk on Jägermeister and I can't get the alarm to set properly. And anyhow, um, yeah. So, so almost losing your job, you decide to quit so that you aren't ostracized from the community of, and I don't imagine they were all alcoholics, but like, that's, that's your friend group, right? That's. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't diagnose anyone, but um, yeah, it's a, alcoholism is a self-diagnosed illness, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But it, it's just really funny because you know, um, before that happened, uh, I, I had been found collapsed on the street with vomit on me, like unconscious, and someone had called an ambulance, and I ended up um, waking up in the hospital. And it, that wasn't the thing that got me to think about my drinking. It was the fact that I was about to lose my source of 
cheap alcohol. <laughs> that was the thing that started me thinking about um, about my drinking. And then, you know, I realized that by, by at twenty ten, you know, it had to be the whole of my university career lasted seven years, even though it should have only taken three years. So in twenty ten, I was probably on, you know, re- repeating a year, um, repeating an academic year, and. So I thought, you know, yeah, maybe this is a good opportunity for me to actually focus on university. And um, so when I quit my job, I realized that I just I just couldn't stop drinking. So I decided to go to my local drug and alcohol service and they um, they they had they had like nice services like ear acupuncture. And they also gave me a leaflet, um, an AA leaflet. And I saw the G word. Um, the <laughs> on that leaflet and I was like I have just left a cult I'm not about to join another one <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so yep. that was it for me and and also when I went to the that's the drug and alcohol service I, I would see people who you know you could tell that they had lost everything as a result of alcohol you know homes possessions money they probably didn't have any of that kind of stuff to begin with whereas I was at uni at a good university um wanting to you know on my way to becoming a corporate lawyer I'm a I'm an African woman from a respectable family I do not belong in this place so I concluded that my problem was just trauma and that all I needed to do was get some therapy and I'll be fine so so yeah that's that's when I first started thinking I wasn't thinking about sobriety at that time I was thinking of moderation or learning how to moderate so Mm -hmm. how did that go (laughs) how did that go I mean well I'm sitting here now right but um were there attempts at moderation yeah there yeah. were so for, for one thing like I was smoking I, I had started smoking around like 2009 and pretty much immediately like smoking nicotine like cigarettes and pretty much immediately I just didn't want to do it so um around 2010 as well I I was on the journey of trying to quit smoking and um some of the um things I would hear people say was you know when you're trying to quit smoking maybe try and not drink because drinking is a trigger to smoking and and so to be honest around um let's say around 2012 um I'd had therapy I had CBT and I was um I'd managed to find someone who um fell in love with me and life was good and well life was shit but it was it was improving I was feeling more stable so I was able to um quit drinking for a while so that I and also that enabled me to stop smoking for a while um but when that happened I was a dry drunk as we as I call as we as I know the term now I was a dry drunk so I was restless irritable discontent I alienated my friends the people I was living with I um and I was also on this medication to try and help me stop smoking um so it was it was and all of my the the trauma that I had been stuffing down was was slowly coming up and I was realizing that these some of the sexual experiences that I had had were um illegal like sexual assault um and so all of that was coming up and um it got it, it so it was it was it was really painful and really difficult and in amongst that I would you know start drinking again and start trying to moderate again um I managed to I managed to graduate from uni which which means that I um I managed I, I managed to have some time without without drinking but as soon as uni was out of you know as soon as my degree was under my belt you know that was it I was I was off I was drinking um and you know trying to work and drink it it was just it was just hellish and so I did try I did try and moderate but um yeah it was it was and you know consequences were um a lot different because I to be honest I was drinking less than I was when I was bartending and Mm -hmm. I was I felt like I was drinking like a lady because I'd switched from like snake bites to to 
to white wine. Um, I don't know if you have snake bites in the US. So, well, I, the, the, well I, I, so this, we thought this was the coolest thing when we were kids. So I think yeah. the snake bite, if I'm not mistaken, is um, half cider and half Guinness. Is that correct? So we have, I think we have half cider, half lager. Okay. And then black currant. <laughs> oh, so we, I think we would call that like a shandy or something here. I think, okay. I don't know, but yes, I'm aware. I'm aware of that. <laughs> yes. And so we, or <clears throat> having fun little experiments, but you, you have weird leftover liqueurs. You're like, Oh, I'll just pour a little bit of that in my yeah. Budweiser. And all of a sudden I've got a fancy new drink. Yeah. <laughs> just the, <clears throat> the amount of bizarre concoctions and I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll share one with you really quickly. Um, my buddy, Jerry and I, we used to, uh, we used to hang out and drink all the time and there was some moving or something was happening. And he had this big bucket of margarita mix in the freezer and it was supposed to be left in the freezer. Um, I don't know what party this was from. Yeah. So for some reason we had a big bucket of margarita mix. We had a bottle of one, five, one high proof rum, and we had a, bottle of ruby red squirt grapefruit soda and so we dumped the 151 in the frozen margarita mix dirt it up put a little uh ruby red squirt on top we called oh them fancy God. lads and we were just and, and and so it was like it was terrible it was disgusting but yeah. it was what we had available to us yeah i mean i know that's not a snake bite it's a real drink and that's some <laughs> terrible stuff that we made up in the kitchen <clears throat> but yes i am i am aware um, <laughs> yeah. of those yeah. things yeah so yes you were drinking like a lady at this point yeah so I discovered white wine and um actually I was my my ex at the time his mum used to drink red wine especially Chilean wine um so then that became my drink you know I'd only drink Chilean Chilean Merlot and and so <laughs> I felt like I was a real mm -hmm. lady <laughs> <laughs> and then um you know I would if I write I would buy a bottle of wine and then I would run out so then you know by that time I didn't really care what I I, I drank after that so it would you know I'd go out and to the off license and buy um like 500 milliliter cans of lager whatever the cheapest lager was yeah. um and I you know have like four of those on top of the uh, the bottle of wine yeah. Well, because that first bottle of wine, for me at least, it was like that was just the warm up. That was yeah. just the baseline. That was that was fine. That was normal, you know, for me. And if people didn't understand, it's just because they didn't need as much as I did, right? Like yeah. that was my whole thinking. So yeah, I'm gonna have a bottle of wine and then I'm gonna need yeah. a little bit more because I'm not done. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> um, and how long did this last like this, drinking like a lady? Um Right up until the end of my drinking, actually, I got sober on 28th December 2018. Congratulations. So, um, thank you. By the end of my by the end of my drinking, it was I even had become more refined. So instead of uh, topping up with beer or lager, I would top up with those little cans of gin and tonics. Um, and gin and tonic is like really, you know, it's quite it's it's, it's like the ladies' drink in the UK. So you know, I'd top up with like six, six or like four or four, five or six of those little cans. They're like, mm -hmm. I don't know what the volume is, but, um, but then, you know, the last, the last drunk I had was two bottles of wine. And I actually, it was, an, I actually bought two bottles of wine all in one go. And that was, that was the new thing for me. Normally it was, you know, one is going to be enough. Oh, one is not enough. Oh, I'll go out again and buy some cans of gin and tonic but on that night I realized that that's not going to be enough so I might as well just buy two bottles of wine mm -hmm. and and um and it was I was still quite refined I chose the South African I was drink towards the end I was drinking South African wine because they have the strongest alcohol content so <laughs> and then funny how that <clears throat> how we start looking at things differently you know like well yeah. it's Oh, well, that one's got what's what's going to get me there as quick as possible, especially since my, you know, it's so, so funny. Well, I'll go with the 14% or the 16% yeah. rather than the 12. Exactly. So on that last night, what was the, what was the, the moment of 
clarity? What was the, or when did that come? Well, to be honest, the moment of clarity came before that last drink. Basically, <clears throat> I had, um, I had been to, I'd been going to AA for like since that February, and I had broken up with my partner during that time. Between the first time I started going to AA and my last drink. I had broken up with my partner of six and a half years. I'd moved house twice. I was facing redundancy at work. I'd done all these job interviews, none of which were successful, mostly because I was turning up to the interviews hungover. Um, <laughs> and one time I was like half over half an hour late. Um, and I realized that I that and I need to do something here. So I found a sponsor and she was like, okay, well, um, yeah you could start calling me every night for every day for two weeks and I was like shit I've, I've gone and done it I've got myself a sponsor like this is this is it so I just had I just went and got those two bottles of wine as like a farewell drink <laughs> got it okay so so <laughs> so you were going to AA while you were drinking yeah, oh my gosh yes okay okay and yeah. so so was any of that starting to sink in? Was it was it ruining your drinking? Because I've also heard this that you know getting a little bit of AA in your head will really ruin your drinking. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it wasn't really AA that ruined my drinking because I was like the before I went to AA. Like let's say around I don't know like so I went started going to get, going to AA in twenty eighteen, but a few years before that I um, I went missing during a blackout and um was sexually assaulted um again and I was that's when I realized that wow I need I really need to do something about my drinking um and even before that I had realized I need to do something because you know I just I just couldn't hold my wee I was just pissing myself all the time um, <laughs> as when I was drunk and um I went and got checked out but from got checked out from um, from my GP, and I found out that I had some gynecological gynecological issues going on. That um, and my my G, my GP suggested I stop drinking for thirty days, and I just couldn't do it. And that's when I realised that oh my gosh, I think I have a problem because I just I can't stop. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and so then you know the the sexual assault happened again, and it just. I was having I was having therapy by that time I'd had loads of therapy already and um, trying to cope deal with the trauma that way but it was I was still drinking I would go to therapy and then on my way home you know pick up some wine um, and that's when I discovered the the like the new sobriety movement and how you know sobriety has been sobriety has basically been co-opted by capitalism but that's what really that's what really got me into sobriety because I did I still didn't think I was an alcoholic I still didn't think I needed AA because I hadn't lost everything um and you know AA in my head was a cult so I did everything well I is impossible to do everything but I tried so many different things like reading sober literature um buying online courses listening to podcasts going to events you know I, I tried so many different things and a lot of these people were quite against AA as well and I really internalized um the ideas that they had and but none of the stuff that they were offering was working for me um uh, which was which was just like oh my gosh therapy's not working sobriety like the sobriety movement new sobriety movement is not working like what what like, I just felt really really hopeless and um it's like a, you know the AA literature says you know the a sense of incomprehensible demoralization and so my friend suggested <laughs> I go to AA and um because um, she's a she's a friend who I really respect and admire. She's uh, we're aligned politically, part of the LGBT community as well. So that um, she she managed to convince me to go. So by that time, by the time I'd gone to AA, I already had in my head this is not going to work because all of the stuff that I had been reading beforehand 
was mm-hmm. telling me that AA is not going to work because it's like this, it's a Christian patriarchal religion that is not trauma informed. It's just full of white people and there's no therapists and it's not professional. And so that's the idea that that's, that's the thinking. And that I AA. <laughs> all of those things could be said about AA and be somewhat accurate. Yeah. And also that's not at all. Yeah. You know, like those are all valid concerns and complaints yeah. and, and roadblocks that I think sometimes people put up, mm. but I have seen it, you know, it's like I, I, I had a friend um, and she's a big Morrissey fan and I'm <laughs> sure you know who Morrissey is. Um, and I remember she was talking about quitting drinking and getting over it. And like I said, I'm going to send you this book. And she said, but it's all about God. And I said, look, here's what I want you to do in this book, go and cross out every single mention of the word God and just put Moz in there. (laughs) And like, let's forget about God for a second. It's just like, you're just, you're gonna, you you already, you already worship Morrissey, right? So it's fine. So whatever it takes to get you through those things. And yeah, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of problematic language in that book. And there's some, uh, you know, we could, we could talk about what to the wives or, um, (laughs) right. So it's like, let's just, and whatever, I'm not going to argue with people about changing the literature. It is what it is at this particular moment and it'll change when it needs to change. But I, and you know, you found it. And despite all of those things that you went in believing, and I've just, it's, it has helped so many people in so many ways. And, um, you can't, I don't, I don't want to say you, you can't, but I'm glad that I didn't let one of those things ruin it for me. I certainly tried <laughs> to find every excuse not to be there, Yeah. but I'm really glad that I looked past all those things. Yeah. Um, and what was the thing that helped you look past all that? Um, well, it was before I even started going to AA, it was my friend patiently writing long text messages to me, telling me that, um, you know, it's about a God of your own understanding and you can choose, you can choose Gaia, Mother Earth, you can choose um, your dog or your cat or, you know, the trees or the the collective wisdom of the group. Um, you know, and she also mentioned that there are atheists and agnostics in AA and, you know, those people still stay sober. It, it attracts people from a wide variety of backgrounds and religions. And so I think if I hadn't gone to, the first meeting I went to was an LGBT meeting. And if I hadn't gone to that meeting, I probably wouldn't have come back. <laughs> But yeah, that was that was what got me in the room. But I was I still had so much of a resentment and a block towards it. And um, to be honest, I you know I struggle being in white dominated spaces. I, I struggle being the only black person in the room. Um, it's hard enough being in the workplace and being the, it was bad enough at that time being in the workplace and trying to and being the only one but um actually at the time when I joined AA I was in a workplace that was more diverse actually um but it was yeah it was it, it that that's what got me in the room and I I did keep coming back but you know I would I was still drinking you know I would go to a meeting on a Tuesday evening on my way home I'd um pick up you know a bottle and hope, hope hoping that no one from the meeting saw me <laughs> it was just yeah that that's how it was, my life was for for that first 10 months yeah and then the sponsor helped you to stick with it well I find I've really struggled to find a sponsor at first actually and I felt you know I you know and I still feel that this maybe it was an example of racism because I hear of people going into the meetings and being told I'm going to be your sponsor or there's your sponsor or you know I but I really I you know I I really struggled to find um people who would actually you know want to sponsor me um but I finally that December finally you know go into a meeting and um heard I heard someone share and I thought to myself, I want that woman to be my sponsor. I want what she has. 
and you know we had a conversation and she does she was she's she was she's doing this similar kind of work that I do in terms of activism and social change work and you know she's a white woman but very much aware of her privilege and knows knows what racism looks like um and so that that enabled me to trust her and so when she said you know get a copy of the big book you know we're gonna start in a couple of weeks I was like okay this is it this is finally it's finally time so yeah that was on the 20th yeah on the what's that that was on the 20th 28th of December 2018 so you're coming up on three years here in another month yeah (laughs) um I think it's the 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 phrase find someone who has what you want Mm. is important and I think that that cuts through a lot of the roadblocks that we like to put up about the program Mm. because I was extraordinarily skeptical and I went into it. um, I was like, I'm a private detective and I'm going to figure out why this isn't going to work for me. And I'm going to find every little hole and every little thing. And I'm going to, I'm going to inspect it. I'm going to go, but it's with the scrutiny of somebody who knows that it's not going to work. Yeah. And then one day I heard a guy talk and there was a lot of this. And, you know, I go to a lot of, been to a lot of meetings with people who look just like me. And, um, and then there's a lot of those, the, the stag meetings, which was a lot of like hardcore, loud, male, masculine energy. And I was like, I don't feel comfortable here. I'm glad this is here for these guys. And I hope Mm -hmm. that it works for them, but this is not my thing. And then, but I, I heard a guy get up and talk and he was very soft-spoken and he took his time and he was thoughtful and, and I was like, and he was gentle. And I said, okay, I'm going to go talk to that guy because mm. maybe that might work for me. And I did. And he said, well, let's just, you know, stay after the meeting. And we, I said, I'm not sure of anything. I don't want a sponsor just yet. I just want to mm. ask you some questions. And he ended up being he's still a friend today. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely that find somebody who has what you want. Yeah. Help. That's what I say to women now, because, um, yeah, I see women sharing in meetings, you know, I want, I need a sponsor. So if anyone's sponsoring, contact me or on zoom meetings they'll post in the chat I'm looking for a sponsor or they'll you know write that in the whatsapp group you know I'm looking for a sponsor but for me it was really important to find someone who has like you said has what I want and has and and that was advice that was given to me um you know halfway through that um partway through that first 10 months of trying to find a sponsor it was you know looking when you hear someone sharing look into her eyes and if you see recovery shining in her eyes and and you find that really attractive then ask her to be a sponsor um and so that that's the advice that I try to give people these days as well because it's not just about saying I'm looking for a sponsor and then expecting loads of people to crowd around you saying I'll be your sponsor um I don't I don't really like that approach of uh, there has there have been opportunities where someone has you know posted something in a whatsapp group and said I'm looking for a sponsor and I've used it as an opportunity to you know reach out to someone and say Let, let's have a chat about it um but I definitely prefer the um I pre- definitely prefer to be approached by women who have heard what I, I have to say and want what I have so it's definitely um yeah I definitely prefer that approach the attraction not the promotion exactly yeah <laughs> um yeah and and you know another thing uh that a friend of mine's dad who has 30 almost 30 years 30 years and he would say things like look man you don't have to marry the guy and if it doesn't work go find somebody else yeah because there's always this sort of and rightfully so you know it's a very terrifying experience in the beginning you don't know what Mm. you're getting into there's all this talk about god and i'm gonna have to start writing things down and talking to strangers and like i'm not interested in doing any of that Mm. but also there's people you're 
I mean, it's just life and it's just human beings. And some people you're not going to get along with and some people you're going to get along with better. Yeah. So um, that's, that's something that also made it a lot easier was, oh, okay. So you mean I don't have to finish everything with this person if I don't like this person? Well, I can move on. Mm. Which is not to say, John, that you don't have to do the work and you can't <laughs> use that as your new excuse for not doing yeah, it. But, exactly. you know, um, so three years on, mm. coming up on three years. Yeah, right? coming up on three years. How does that feel now? Oh, that is such a good question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to be honest, um, the reason I came to AA like you was to um, find all the reasons why it didn't work. Um, you know, I saw the new sobriety movement and how, you know, capitalism has gotten into it. And I wanted that, you know, I, I wanted the um, look at me, I'm one year sober and I've got an engagement ring and I've got nice skin and I've lost three dress sizes and I'm earning lots of money. So when my first year came around and I hadn't lost three dress sizes, I hadn't got, I wasn't wearing an engagement ring and I didn't have um, a really high paying job. I was like, fuck, this doesn't work. <laughs> this sober sobriety thing doesn't work. Um, you know, it was, and, and it was funny because actually I got my dream job in my, in my first five months and I was, I was earning more money than, than I have, had ever earned before. Um, but, you know, my job turned into my, my dream job turned into a nightmare. And um, I was just, you know, I was just restless, irritable, discontent. And second year came round and still the same thing, you know, I'm not earning loads of money or, you know, enough money to buy a house in London. Mm -hmm. I haven't got, a, haven't got an engagement ring and I'm not a three dress sizes smaller, you know? And so, you know, I first came into AA because I wanted to, um, um, I don't know, be part of the movement and write a book, be part of the sobriety movement, like the, you know, influencers and write a book about a black woman's experience in, in recovery and sobriety and how AA doesn't work for us black women. Um, but here is a program that does, um, I don't know what program was gonna work because I, I was still drinking then when I was <laughs> fantasizing about all of that stuff. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it, I, you know, my first year came around, my second year came around and, you know, things on paper still seem quite the same. Like even when I was, when I, when I, when I celebrated my second year, I was experiencing housing precarity. You know, I, I, I needed to move out of my house, but I didn't know where I was going to live. And it was just like, it was, it was very, um, and and you know we were in a global pandemic <laughs> and, mm -hmm. you know, and so it was but I think I think what I can say is that I've learned so much about myself I've learned how um I've learned the contents of this crazy mind of mine and that sometimes it, it's just nice to have a chuckle at how random and mad I am um <laughs> but it's also really great to be able to know that I could I can deal with some of the most challenging life experiences that a human can experience and not pick up a drink mm -hmm. um for me my saving grace has been being of service um, so I, um, I, I set up before the pandemic started, actually, I set up a WhatsApp group for black women in, in AA. And I just, I would just like collect the numbers of black women that I saw in meetings. And, and then the pandemic hit and then we all went on Zoom. And then one of the women that was in the group was like, hey, let's start up a meeting. So now we've got a meeting for black women, an AA meeting for black women. And I think it's the first ever meeting for black women in the UK. Um, and as a result of that, I've been, I've, I've seen the BIPOC fellowship grow up around me. And, the, and there have also been, even before the pandemic started, there were BIPOC meetings in the US as well. And, 
And so being able to be plugged into that, um, into those communities, whether it's um, just by AA, BIPOC meetings or all recovery meetings, it's just been really, really eye-opening. And also being in all recovery meetings has helped me understand different layers of recovery that I can potentially be, um, be working on, whether it's my issues with under-earning or my issues with sex or my issues with um, being an adult child of a dysfunctional family. You know, it's just all of that, all of that stuff has just been really, really eye-opening. And so, um, yeah, I don't really know. I feel like cause I'm at the, I'm at the stage in my life where <laughs> I need to find a new job and, um, the rug has been pulled up from under me. And, um, so just before I was, before I came on here, I was writing a job application and I was just feeling like so much tightness in my throat. That's the feeling that I used to drink on. I used mm. to interpret that feeling, oh, that's a craving, that's something I need to drink. Um, but I can feel that sensation in my, in my throat and just allow it to be there. And sometimes, you know, I will pray to God and say, ask, let me know what this sensation is what is this feeling what is this feeling that I need to digest and um metabolize um and uh, yeah the miraculous thing is I believe in God now (laughs) which is which which only started happening um earlier this year and um before that I was using other things as my higher power um like mother earth and uh, my ancestors and that that's that's those are all part of my conception of a higher power but mm-hmm. I'm now I'm now able to use the g word now and feel comfortable about it and it's only because of the miracles of this program and um and the fellowship and hearing people share their experience strength and hope around what the, what god means to them and it's not necessarily a colonial white bearded sky daddy who is gonna you know destroy me if I um if I masturbate but it's like a it's like a it's like a genuine feeling of connection yeah with a power greater than myself and that it ebbs and flows but you know it's it it, it is it is great to to feel that serenity yeah I I couldn't put it better myself and I'm 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 happy for you. I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing. I I'm still trying to find that in, you know, my, what is, I imagine a very nihilistic and often fatalistic way of thinking about the world and life. And, you know, is there any meaning and is maybe it's all just meaningless. And those are things that I just, I deal with and still regardless of that, I've been able to piece together at least some vague notion of that higher power and i'm so glad that you you have that because it it shows and um in just the way that you talk about it it shows and so it's definitely again find somebody who has what you want (laughs) and go talk to them you know um where can people find you and find these meetings if they're interested in these meetings what's the best way of contacting you or reaching out yeah so i'm on twitter as at black girl sober um i think that's my handle um and it's <laughs> an instagram as well okay. um and yeah you can find me there and um yeah there's there's a there's a there's a whole world of meetings especially for people of color mm-hmm. especially for queer people especially for atheists agnostics free thinkers there's just a wealth of AA meetings, 12-step meetings for us, by us. Um, in the big book, the chapter called A Vision for You is about creating the fellowship you crave. We are creating the fellowship we crave. And so, you know, if you go to a meeting and you hear them say the Lord's Prayer at the end and it really pisses you off, come and find us so that we can... That is, that is another thing like we don't we don't do that here in the uk say the lord's prayer after the meeting but really hear, yeah we don't do that in london <sighs> at least in london we don't do that but it's just it just 
it really boils my piss when I hear people do, <laughs> when I hear people do that but um yeah there, there's a fellowship for us for those of us for whom you know that that's that's a that's a barrier so yeah find me okay yeah I just started getting over it I was like okay they're just doing <laughs> the Lord's prayer my favorite is there would occasionally be the guy who'd be like who puts the fuzz on the peaches <laughs> Lord and uh, that was my favorite part. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so um, it was, yeah. So yeah, that's great. That's awesome. That's exactly what what we need because God, I, I used to, I would go to one meeting and I would hate it. And I was like, well, just go to another one. And then I would mm-hmm. hate that one. And it was like, well, just go to another one. And ultimately I found several that were yeah. that worked for me. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important, especially for people who don't look like me, which is, mm. um, which is who AA was originally made for, right? Yeah. W- regardless of what the, you know, the wording might be otherwise, yeah. or be, be told otherwise. So, um, Karen, thank you so much. Thank this you. This was so awesome. Much. Thank you so much for listening to me, John. It was just, it's just a really great conversation. I just want to say it's very ironic that my um, ancestors chose to reveal themselves to me via uh, a book written by um, a bunch of white upper middle class men in the US um, but that's that's how that's how I've been able to connect to my ancestors and my you know my my spirituality that um, was taken away from my people as a result of colonialism so it just it just feels like um for me it's you know as the program is it's all about honesty open-mindedness and willingness and that's that's what has really supported me and get helping me connect to myself and who I really am so thank you so much for um for all your support and yeah I really enjoyed this conversation thank you you're welcome Thanks again for listening. Our music, as always, is by Neglect. You can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms that matter, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us at aisforalcoholic at gmail.com. Talk to you later. Yeah. <laughs>